At the University of Arizona Bio5 Institute, we are focused on tackling complex challenges such as disease, hunger, water and food safety, and other health and environmental issues facing our families, communities, and the world. Bio5 brings together hundreds of multifaceted experts that include world-class scientists, engineers, physicians, and computational researchers in a team science environment designed to creatively solve difficult problems. This approach has resulted in disease prevention strategies, promising new therapies, innovative diagnostics and devices, and improved food crops. Join us each week as we talk about science with researchers, staff, and students from the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Science Talks, a conversation hosted by the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute. My name is Sean Caden. And I'm Brooke Moreno. And today we're talking about the 2021 Precision Wellness in the Time of COVID-19 series. At the Bio5 Institute, we are passionate about optimizing human health in order to prevent disease and improve the overall quality of life. The Precision Nutrition and Wellness Initiative at the Bio5 Institute is hosting a public five-month virtual seminar series discussing precision wellness during these unprecedented times. Today, we're talking with Dr. Eve Lussier, Professor of Bioinformatics and one of our future precision wellness speakers. Thank you, Dr. Lussier, for joining us today. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. So we're going to jump right into questions. Uh, as as a quick question for you, I, I noticed that uh, you are what is called a precision, a physician, physician scientist. There we go. I knew I could get it out. Um, would you be able to talk about both of those elements and how those distinct disciplines work effectively to combat health issues like COVID-19? I'm trying to precision scientist, meaning science and precision? Uh, physician scientist. So physician, physician scientist. scientist. Yes. Okay, yes. So... Um, I trained in engineering for first and then medicine. And my, my dream was always to bring the two together and to have computers speak the language of medicine. Well, they need to speak the language of biology to speak the language of medicine, among many other things. And different from accounting that pertains to molecules, cells, tissue, organs, and so on and so forth. So um, in my investigation of that, because when I was young, such languages exist for computers. They were designed mostly for engineers and accountants. Um, I've learned many methodologies and um, over time I specialize into internal medicine as well as um, um, uh, biomedical informatics, which is a, a more recent field, which became a subspecialty just four years ago. Uh, in, in, so now we have uh, biomedical mathematicians as clinical mathematicians in the hospitals that, that practice this subspecialty. Um, so uh, it's really a, a, a process of making sure that we can do better decisions faster in the presence of patients. Uh, it's called decision support tools that are gen generally require a lot of technology and knowledge about medicine in order to um, have them perform well so that they alert at the right moment and not unnecessary and don't miss stuff. In addition, now that there's more and more molecular knowledge and genomic knowledge about medicine, it requires also um, to understand this new field, which is called precision medicine, which is really individualizing healthcare with even more um, 
hooks than the conventional labs now that we have genomics, transcriptome, proteomes, and metabolomics. Really the best of both worlds there, huh? Yes, it's a long story. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be in a position in which uh, I have my um, dream job every day, right? As I dreamed when I was 18. I just didn't know it would be so much studies to get there. But <laughs> right. That's how it goes. <laughs> C'est la vie. But, One you know, step that at a time. You, you started to get into talking about how your career as a physician scientist has led you to precision medicine. Can you tell us more about that? Exactly what is it? And, and how does it apply to your research and disease? Sure. So uh, nurses, physicians always try to be, uh, to individualize healthcare. So that's no different from the past. What's different is that we're drinking knowledge from the firewalls right now. In 2001, the Human Genome Project led to the full sequence of the human genome, and that's 2.5 billion base pair. That's 2.5 thousand millions, right? You're right. Of little molecules. And um, one needs to understand how that relates to, um, to our health and disease and it mm. interacts with the environment. Otherwise, we look exactly the same as we were when we were born, right? So the genome is, the, the, the blueprint is not just a blueprint for designing us once, it's a blueprint on how we will adapt to our environment. So two twins, exact twins, could have very different uh, bodies due to their training, eating, where they live. I come from Canada, living in the cold. If I had a twin there or living in Arizona or Utah, it's quite different. And um, it could be totally adapted. That's what um, these, um, this blueprint is about. It's about uh, making the human species probably the most adaptable of all the species on Earth. We live in more environments mm. than any other species. Mm -hmm. When you said uh, adapting to the environment, so that has... Uh, that really is what we're doing right now. The fact that we're not having this conversation in person, mm -hmm. uh, yes. the fact that we are, we are having to communicate in all different ways and how we've adapted during the time of this pandemic. So, so talk about a little bit about your adaptations when you're talking about having a talk about precision wellness. What are the main items that you want to get across to the people during a time in which there, there's a lot of questions. There's not always a lot of answers and it's, and it's difficult to be able to kind of shepherd people in the right direction. Sure. So there's, um, so we're speaking of the COVID pandemic, or mm -hmm. you didn't name it, but uh, um, so that's an environment that changes us. For physicians and biologists, the environments could be anything from the weather, what we breathe, what we eat, our exercise. It's what mm -hmm. affects the uh, directly or indirectly our our body and cells. So the COVID obviously is a virus, affects us. And interestingly, from the genome, there were, um, there's new knowledge that uh, became available about two months ago that 13% of death can be explained by two genes. And they only studied 20 genes out of the genome because uh, they didn't have large enough population to do that. That was the oh, wow. CDC with the European Union. And they wow. pulled all their patients together and they had the opportunity to have a million markers in the genome, but could only look into a subset because otherwise there's a problem called the curse of dimensionality. When you have too much data and you make hypotheses over them, 
if you make a million hypotheses, you need to control for that because there's always a risk of what we call false positive. Mm. And that's too many for the small population they have. So there's always um, a give and take. So they decided to take uh, the best knowledge of biologists and physicians. Um, they could not study more than 20 genes and they studied those 20 genes well and only two panned out. But it's still very impressive that among what the biologists and physicians knew of the disease, two genes could explain 13% of mortality. No kidding. What does it mean for us? It means that probably within two years when we can study larger population because this pandemic will remain with us like cold and flu, we'll hopefully be able to understand half the mortality with simple tests that are genetic tests. Right now, arguably, if someone could design it as cheap as a pregnancy test, and it's, we have the technology, it's very plausible that someone could do that. Within months, we could have people do a test, right, out of a swab for $20 and verify in the pharmacy if they're among those that are at risk of death having COVID. Amazing. Now, wow. This risk of death increases with age. So that's where the age, another environment, um, interacts with the test. Um, and really, someone over 85 having positive for these two genes alterations, right? We're speaking of specific alterations of the genes that, that people carry in the, in the profession and they're not rare, they're not rare infrequent things. They're not new mutations of a new, of a new disease. They're really what we carry, humanity, and a, a, probably in a single digit, six, seven percent of people may be at higher risk with that. And with age, it becomes very important, which means these people may want to um, verify that their response to the vaccine is strong and because we know five percent or do not have a competent response to the vaccine to the two doses of the vaccine oh. and they will remain at risk and may need to wear the mask longer and in presence of other people while others do not so that's where we need a lot of tolerance in our society and think of the middle ground of the common sense of not questioning everyone why they wear a mask or not. Mm. <laughs> really, uh, they may be at very high risk of lethality and it's their, it's, you know, it's their rationale, especially in two years when we probably will be able to identify half of the mortality associated to a disease, uh, uh, possibly a, a Mendelian risk, a, a risk of a single gene somewhere. Um, there's a subset of the population that for which it may be recommended for them to wear the, the mask if they don't have a competent response to the vaccine. Well, oh, there's so much information in there I did not know. For you. Yeah. Whoa. I mean, one of the follow-up things for the, for, the, for the people who think that, well, I, I, I had COVID or if, if they had COVID and they had a mild response, I have known some people that have had a mild response to COVID. They wouldn't necessarily know that they were one of the risk factors. You know, maybe, maybe it's just they got lucky and, and they had a mild response and they think, well, maybe this isn't so bad. But for somebody who has that target, that specific element, that, that is, you know, it's, it's part of our kind of our community. We don't know who exactly has yeah. that yet. We're not for T's and having an having an average solution for an average person is not adequate anymore. Our mm -hmm. science and our methods are much more advanced than that. And most people are unaware, but even the best medication we have work in only 70% of the people. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. So if wow. you could test which 30% were, are taking it for nothing, you would mm. save a lot of money, right? It's, it's not part of the business model of <laughs> wow. the pharmacies to right. test that in parallel, except there are new businesses, especially in cancer, where these tests are being done. And um, there are two tests for breast cancer that mm. verify if one type of uh, medication that costs a lot uh, is adequate and they would have a response or not because that business model was developed as such. And um, these tests cost a lot as well, but far less than the, than the, than the treatment that would be unnecessary. So these mm. things exist. It's called, that's precision medicine. And um, it, it's, it's coming to us. Currently, the, the tests I was speaking of are easier to understand because they speak of one molecule at a time. But in the future, that's not sufficient to explain the complex disease. And we'll see tests that are more complicated mm. that even physicians would have, well, not more complex, probably not complicated, but even physicians would have an, a difficulty to understand without prior knowledge where it is. And this brings okay. back the idea that computer can help us in decision support tools to address the complexity so that it's not complicated, though it's complex and that it can be explained to physicians and patients alike. Yeah, the communication is a huge part of that. And I think you've made a perfect segue here. So you use uh, technology and bioinformatics to understand individualized disease treatment. Uh, in your opinion, what does the power of a computer allow you to do that wouldn't be possible at the bench or in the clinic? <laughs> so it's different things, right? So there are so many places where it can help. Um, Simply to, um, simply to assemble the genome and to verify um, what's normal or abnormal in the genome of someone or transcriptome computers are required there because there's far too many calculations to be done by hand. Mm. Again, we're speaking of taking billions of little parts and assembling them and verifying um, what looks like the common blueprint and what's different from a common blueprint mm. uh, of the human genome. So that's called the assembly of the human genome. The analyses of the human genome as well require computers because it would be too laborious to do by hand for in each individual. If we go back just 10 years, it would cost for a single individual, the assembly would cost thousands of dollars. Not the biology of the sequencing, that would be 10,000, but thousands of dollars of computing time. All of that is becoming uh, really at reduced cost. Right now, we've got um, sequencing as low as $300, and there's assemblies that, against a known template that could be as cheap as well. So you can see the price reduces rapidly. The first human genome cost a billion dollars. So even the computer's costs never reduce so fast. So um, we're really at the, um, at the, the crux of another um, technological revolution. Um, remember, we're still part of the digital revolution that you know, follows the, I would guess, I guess, vapor, electricity, other industrial revolutions. So the digital age with machine learning, and these are other tools that can help find patterns that elude clinicians in imaging or in the genomes when we have large populations to test it against. So that's yet uh -huh. another way in which a technology comes in. 
But most importantly, when it's time to deliver the care, um, just in time, in the presence of the patient, there's a lot of calculations that can be done on um, a patient as they arrive in the clinic, much more than the physicians can look into. And that would also elevate our capability to be more accurate, to spend more time human, human, you know, on the humanity part of the, the relationship with the patient while uh, some of these calculations are done ahead of time. Fascinating. Things you don't think about when it comes to healthcare, right? Well, it's one of the things, it also it doesn't need to be complicated. One of the things physicians are not very good at doing because they like intellectual challenges. Uh-huh. And sometimes it's simply just verifying that everybody's get, get vaccinated in a timely manner. Every 10 years, you need to verify if your tetanus uh, has, been, uh, has been done. And in mm-hmm. adults, it's, not some, it's something that's often overlooked. And um, it's silly, right? Because a tetanus can kill. Right, right. Well, and I, I think that's a good reminder that uh, I think so, I'm overdue for a few, uh, a few shots. And if you walk on a nail on the ground, and then it's five years. And right. that's something to remind ourselves. And um, I come from Canada originally, and where we lose the most people are in the northern territories that are so vast. They're the size of half of the U.S., and there's only 40,000 people living there. And yes, they don't get their tetanus rigorously. And yes, they can get infected oh. from the soil. And um, yeah, that we still see people dying of tetanus over there wow. more often. And, and again, this is not um, rocket science, but it's just the regularity of verifying things that you now shingles after 50. Right. It's, now it's, we have the vaccine for shingles and to do shingles after 50, just um, routine care of trivial stuff. Well, physicians prefer to make a diagnosis, choose a treatment, but there's these little things in the background that computers can also help us because they don't forget. Right. Well, like you were saying, it's not, it's not rocket science, it's precision wellness. And uh, <laughs> we've got uh, your, the title of your talk is called Personalized Beyond precision, the significance of single subject studies in, post, in a post-genomic analysis. So tell us a little bit more about the importance of single subject studies, try saying that 10 times fast, as opposed to <laughs> traditional group studies. So traditional group studies are designed to find averages. A good example for that would be Indoral or propanolol and uh, a, hyper, uh, a drug against hypertension which uh, 30 years ago when I was in med school was under patent at that time. And the studies had been done in white Caucasian males. As I came out of my uh, studies and residency, we already knew it would only work in 50% of females. Even the clinicians would observe that it didn't work so well. So, and at that time, as they did these additional studies, that is one of the seminal studies that led the, the National Institute of Health to require that every clinical trial has males, females, if need be, children, and diversity. Um, Hispanics, non-Hispanics, African-American, Asians, etc. Not just people from one continent. And um, so it was even worse, African-American males were only 30% responsive to this drug. Oh my gosh. But here's the back end. It's off patent now. No one has an interest to figure out 
whom it would be useful for. It's still given initially in 30% of white Caucasian that don't need it because it works only 70% of the time in white Caucasian. It's not given women, while 50% could benefit, nor African-American males, while 30% could benefit. With the right precision test, we'd be able to save someone responsive or not. So my team has been developing techniques called single subject studies in which you can take a tissue that's not invasive, like blood or skin, mm -hmm. a, a small quantity, and do a test out of the body. We call that ex vivo or in vitro testing and compare control that's not affected with one that's affected. We've mm -hmm. done that with our colleagues, Fernando Martinez, for example, in asthma, and we're able to predict which children among severe asthmatic children that were all maximized on treatment, which ones would be hospitalized in the coming year for um, a severe uh, exacerbation of their asthma and which ones would not. Holy and cow. was the common cold because a common cold in asthmatic children can provoke a severe, uh, severe crisis. It, this has been known for 10, 15 years. So the, the idea of doing that test ex vivo went further than the conventional wisdom, which is let's do a provocation assay of the lung. We give them a bracal constrictor that gets them a crisis. It scares the parents and the clinicians yeah. because they're, really, they're severe asthmatics, right? They, you need right. to have the antidote because they'll choke to death. But then they do a test in which they try to push as much air as they can, and then you give them the antidote. They were indifferentiable, the group that would be hospitalized or not, oh. by gender, age, weight, treatment, they were indifferentiable. So the clinicians could not differentiate them at the organ level, but at the cellular level, the white blood cells in the blood were a good proxy to what's going on in the, in, in the lungs. Mm -hmm. And they could uh, identify when stimulated to virus, which group was different. The advantage of these type of studies that are really omics, we would test, we would test a transcriptome and learn a classifier with machine learning, artificial intelligence. And these type of studies are not so expensive to develop. We, uh, our team, for example, has repositioned and rescued drugs some 15 years ago using uh, computations and verified that, that in vitro, in, in animals, in vivo, and then went to clinical trials. And altogether, it was probably a cost of about $500,000, $300,000 of, of clinical trials. And it worked. We saved lives. While um, um, traditional, um, tr the traditional cost of making sure a, a drug is safe for the market will cost over $100 million. Right. But that drug was safe. It was just ineffective. We rescued it because it was with no indication. It didn't work where it was intended to work originally. Mm -hmm. And with computers, you could figure out ways by analyzing pathways with the right patterns mm -hmm. that would be possible. Wow. Oh my gosh. Right. Well, well, you've given us a lot to think about too. I, I, I do have to ask a kind of a non-science question because you've, you've been great about talking about the science, but, but I understand you were born in Montreal and you mentioned Canada a couple of times. Do you speak French? That's my mother tongue. I ah. eradicate my accents. My kids were born in New York. And okay. Raised in Chicago <laughs> and Arizona. Uh, I was going to say parlez-vous français, but if you start talking to me in French, I have to brush off my high school French, and I think I would, <laughs> I would be dismal. So we were, we won't, 
I'll say. <laughs> we won't we won't do this interview in, in French. Maybe maybe next time. Very good. Uh, so so we want to thank you very much for coming. Thank you, Dr. coming. Pleasure. Really, really appreciate you coming and talking with us and and uh, also want to thank you for all your precision wellness research uh, and, and helping kind of push push the boundaries of precision wellness, helping connect those patterns. And, and, and I think all of our goals are to, to get better, to do what we do, to keep getting better and, uh, and to look for those patterns so that we can, uh, we can have medications and we can have treatments that actually really work for the people. So, so I really thank you for meeting with us and uh, join us for future talks when we continue to highlight our amazing University of Arizona researchers. To learn more about the Bio5 Institute, please visit our website at bio5.org. From all of us here at the Bio5 Institute, Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Lucier. To our audience for tuning in to another episode of Science Talks. Continue the conversation with us next time as we learn more about the science happening at the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute.